in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There's a reason we asked her to sing that song because that is the nature of worship. To worship God is to, to give expression to the fact that you have caught a glimpse of him in such a way that all you can do is speak and pray and lean in and bring your tears and bring your anguish to him. That's because you've seen a glimpse of his face and yet that's also why we come here each week is because we lose sight of it and we have to be given words and we have to put words in our mouth and we have to sing songs that we feel maybe nothing for that we might know his face better than our own because there's just too many other faces in our face each week. And that's why for the remainder of our summer, we've been listening to stories, stories that Jesus would tell, the stories that Jesus calls parables. And those parables have a few things in common. They're all very brief. They're all very evocative. They grab really familiar images and ideas and languages, both to that day and any day. But they also do something that one theologian put it this way. You know what the parables do? They tease us into thought. They're like a good joke that requires you to kind of think about it for a while, to get the punchline. It means it sort of draws you in to help you grasp it. And, and it, it even in some ways, Jesus is a little bit more hidden and a little opaque, and you have to kind of want it in order to get it. And once you get it, then you have to go, what do I do with it? That's what parables do. They're not out to entertain. They are out to pull something from us and kind of force a choice upon us. The parable that we're going to listen to this morning is a parable we probably could have taught from the very beginning of this series because it's all about receptivity, about being receptive to what we find in the text, about what Jesus has to say of this thing, whatever it means he calls the kingdom, of being receptive to that. But if you think about it, that kind of, in our day and in every day, that kind of begs the question, why should we be receptive I mean, we're 21 minutes into this service and we've already spoken the text and we've sung the text and we've read the text and now you're going to hear me preach the text. And doesn't that sort of ask the question, why are you doing that? Why are you giving it that authority? Why are we standing for words like that? It's a great question. It's actually a question that has us sort of locked up in a lot of ways. And before we start asking ourselves about the question of receptivity, we better ask ourselves why we should be. Well, I've spared no expense to invite two voices into that conversation here. One is named Samuel L. Jackson. The other one is Tommy Lee Jones. And they turned a play into a film, a play by the guy named Cormac McCarthy. If you've ever read or seen The Road or No Country for Old Men, that's Cormac McCarthy. We wrote a play several years ago called The Sunset Limited. I've used a scene from this film about over a year ago with you. It is the story of two men. They don't have names. One is named Black. The other one is White. They don't refer to each other by name. Samuel L. Jackson is the black guy. Oh, yeah. Tommy Lee Jones, the white guy. So black and white. And they're sitting in Black's apartment and having a deep conversation. Why? Because White has just tried to take his own life by throwing himself in front of a subway train called the Sunset Limited. But despite his desperation, he ends up inexplicably in Black's hands And Black, with great compassion, takes him back to his apartment to talk things out. And to talk deep stuff. And it's a wonderful play. And it doesn't end in a neat or tidy way. But it's full of glimmers and glimpses of something that's rather glorious. And so I want to sprinkle that play into your minds and in this sermon 
for what we're going to do here. But in order to do that, I want to set it up by letting you see just this brief exchange between black and white about, of all things, the Bible. Because when you're talking about life and death and whether to give it up or keep it, you've got to go deep. And you've got to ask yourself big questions. You've got to ask yourself, what has authority in your life? So watch this little exchange between black and white about, of all things, the Bible. You ever read this book? I've read parts of it. I've read in it. Have you ever read it? Read the book of Job. (laughs) Have you ever read it? No. But you have read a lot of books. Yes. How many, you say? I have no idea. Ballpark. Mm -hmm. Two a week, maybe a hundred a year for close to 40 years. Two a week. 40 times 100 is (laughs) 4,000. I'm just messing with you, Professor. Let's get back to you and all these books you read. You say you done read 4,000 books. Probably, maybe more than that. But not this book. Uh, no. Why is that? I don't know. Well, what would you say is the best book I ever wrote? I have no idea. Well, take a shot. There are a lot of good books. Pick one. Maybe War and Peace. All right. Do you think that book's as good as this one? I don't know. They're different kinds of books. This War and Peace book, this is a book somebody made up, right? Well, yes. So is that what makes it different from this end book? No, in my view, they're both made up. Ain't neither one of them true? Not in the historical sense, no. Hmm. Hmm. But what would be a true book? I suppose maybe a history book. Uh, Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire might be one. At least the events would be actual events. They would be things that had happened. Hmm. So you think that book is as good a book as this book? The Bible? The Bible. I don't know. Gibbons is a cornerstone. It's a major book. And a true book. Don't forget that. And a true book, yes. But is it as good a book? I don't know. I don't know as you can make a comparison. We're talking about apples and pears. We're talking about no apples and pears, Professor. We're talking about books. Is that decline and fall book as good a book as this here book? Answer the question. I might have to say no. used to say, right here on the cover, before it got wore down, the greatest book ever written. Think that might be true? Good morning. You read good books. I try to, yes. But you ain't read the best book. Uh, there's our world in microcosm. What is it? What's it for? Is it good? Is it true? Is there any beauty in it? What's to be done with it? Is there any reason to be receptive to it? Now, newsflash, Jesus says, yes, you ought to be receptive to it. And that's why we're going to listen to a parable of his talk about receptivity. Receptivity in three ways, in three senses. Receptivity for what purpose? Receptivity against what inclinations? And receptivity by what means? For what purpose? Against what natural inclinations? And by what means? We're in Matthew chapter 13. If you're willing and able to stand... You may, you're invited to, Matthew 13. Starting in verse 1. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, 
and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, and another sixty, and another thirty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. You may be seated. He has just had an encounter where people have told him, your mother and brothers are outside waiting for you. And Jesus says, my mother and brothers are those who do the will of God with me. That's what characterizes one who is part of his family, who takes what he's had to say and does something what it will. Why would he say something like that? Thomas Merton was a Catholic priest, mid-20th century, lived in a monastery in Kentucky, um, had grown up throughout Europe, studied in some fine classical schools in Europe. And among his many writings, he said this to capture why Jesus would tell a parable like this. He says this, Every moment... And every event of every man's life on earth plants something in his soul. And by that he means this. You and I are so impressionable and we're largely insensible to how impressionable we are. We read, we listen, we hear, we do stuff, we start forming habits. And those things shape us. They grow in us until they are part of us and they feel as natural as our next breath. Kids, what you read, what you listen to, what you see, whatever you run through your brain, you think you're just encountering it or digesting it. Actually, you're being shaped by it. We talk about a disciple. Jesus had 12 disciples and there are other people that had other disciples. Everybody's being discipled, what Thomas Burton says. Everybody, no matter where you Plant your feet, no matter whether you believe in a God. Every, believe in God or not, everybody's being discipled. Everybody's being shaped. And so for Jesus to tell us a parable about a sower, kind of like what you see in this Eugene Bernan print about the parable. The parable of the sower is an association or an allusion to who God is. And therefore to who Jesus is himself, to one who would speak the word of God unto people that might listen. For him to cast himself in that role is to say that his intention for us is to plant something in us. Something will be planted in us. He's saying, I want to plant something in you. And I want to see that thing that I plant in you grow both in and through you and to mature. And that will change you. So for him to tell us, 
that the sower is out to sow his seed and that by that he wants to plant something in us. He's actually out to tell us this, that what he wants to tell us is not just rules. You don't take what he has to say and say, here, you follow me. That's not what he's just saying. He's got a bigger project in mind. There's a bigger privilege into hearing and being receptive to that. And there's a bigger privilege in that because there's a purpose to this receptivity. And that purpose is captured actually in something that Paul says later in Romans chapter 8, which is arguably the most important chapter in the whole Bible, people will say. I commend it to you for your own memorization and reflection. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, you hear Paul say this about the point. The point is, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, why? To be conformed to the image of his son. Why? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Books have been written about that one verse. I'm reading a book right now about just that one phrase. What does it mean to be conformed into the image of his son? Is it just that we speak his words and act in his way? Yes, but it's grander than that. If he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, he's saying that we're out to be sharing in his glory, whatever that means. That we're out to steward everything that he's entrusted to us from our histories, from our triumphs, from our fears. And as the song sang that Tim sang earlier, even from our griefs, we're to be a steward of that. Even our pain and our suffering, to steward that which he has given to us and also to share in his glory and also to participate in what he's doing. The purpose of being receptive to what he has to say to us is not simply that we'd be in lockstep with what he has or to adopt a code of ethics. It's to be invited in a project that God is working out through this world and participating in that project. That's the purpose of being receptive. It's not a bunch of boxes that you tick off and say, been there, done that. It's about that you might know his face better than your own. But here's the thing. That sort of purpose is embodied in who black is in the Sunset Limited. And we all nod on our heads and go, yeah, okay, great, great, good, and for that, right? But if we're honest with ourselves, we've got more of the white dude in us than we might like to imagine or admit. And that's why Jesus spends the lion's share of this parable not just talking about the purpose of being receptive, but about some really natural inclinations that are marshaled against it. So what is up against this receptivity that he's got to warn us of? The first one is just, you might say, a simple indifference. Jesus talks early in the passage about the sower sowing seed on a footpath, not in soil, but on where everybody walks. Um, Among the many reasons my family has to laugh at me, and that list is growing by the month, is that in the last house I lived in in Dallas, it was my determination to grow grass in my yard naturally. <laughs> Why are you laughing, BB? I tried everything I could. I, I got down on my knees and weeded. I, I nurtured the soil with much water and much malorganite and, and much natural stuff as I could do and nothing, nothing, right? And so I finally broke down and bought some natural fescue seed and I went out one morning and I just overseeded everything and I thought, surely this will grow something. And every few days I would water and every few days I would add, you know, the natural stuff and every day I would get up in the pajamas and the robe and walk out on the sidewalk and just sort of review what was going on. And my, parent, my family would kind of look through the window and look behind the curtains and sort of laugh at me. <laughs> there he is again. 
would stare at that seed and I would say, why aren't you sprouting? And then I, you know, kind of realized, look, you throw seed on hard clay soil in the bakery, in the broiler that is Dallas, Texas. I might as well have just seeded it on the sidewalk I was walking on. It would be to no purpose because it would bear no fruit because that's, that's just not how you seed it. You have to work it in. And if you don't work it in, it's to no purpose. And Jesus is saying, There is a quality of your heart in which you might as well be seeding fescue on a sidewalk when it comes to when you listen to what he has to say. And so he says there in verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Now you hear that and you go, wait, 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 Jesus. You're saying that something is sown in my heart, but if I don't understand it, it will be like taken away as if it were never there. How can something be in your heart yet not understood? You got you to camp for a little bit. You got to be curious for a minute. You got to ask yourself, what, is, what do you mean by the word understand? What Jesus is using by that little word, it's the Greek word sunion, it's, it's this idea not that you sort of get the concept like two plus two is four or uh, uh, philosophy is hard. Um, you get it in this sense. To, to understand is the attempt to be curious, to get it, to work it into you such that you kind of make it your own. You think about it like food. You've got to eat it. You've got to chew it. You've got to digest it. You've got to contribute the salivary stuff to it, and then your body's going to work it in. Or as one theologian put it, to understand is actually to find a way to stand under it. You may not get it fully. You may realize that you will be in a strong, small minority if to stand under it. But to understand it in the way that Jesus is intending here, to push back against the natural inclination of indifference, is to to figure out how to get it and how for it to stand over you. So indifference he's warning against is this lack of interest. It's this incuriosity. It is like, Unwrapping a Tootsie Roll, taking one lick, and throwing it in the trash. You know full well there is no good to be had from the Tootsie Roll until you lick to that choice center. Right? To make one lick and throw it in the trash, you might as well never have unwrapped it. Jesus is saying, by use of a metaphor there, it's like throwing seed on a sidewalk. There's no point. There's an indifference to it. There's an unwillingness to both get it And for it to get into you. Now, for me to say that to you, you may be wondering, wait a minute. (laughs) If, If you think I'm indifferent, then why am I sitting here listening to you, right? If you weren't curious, why would you have even gotten up this morning unless you were curious at least a little for whatever reason? We all have mixed motives, but at least you were curious a little bit about what it was to get what he had to say. How does this apply to you? Let me, let me suggest to you one variation on the idea of indifference that I get deeply and that I think you might share with me in this. And it's based upon a little story I read this week in a book by a guy named Mike Cosper. He's a, a pastor up in Kentucky. He's written a bunch of books. He wrote a book called Recapturing the Wonder. And in the introduction to that book, he talks about a story of going to his Parents, megachurch, somewhere in Texas, 8,000 people, you know, the production value of a U2 concert. And in the middle of that worship service, something happens in the middle of the service, and his dad is like, whoa, whoa, 
is God moving here, right? And they get back, and they're having a meal together, and, and Mike Cosper's dad says, did you see what happened there? Was, was that, do you think that was like a miracle going on? And Mike Cosper's first response was to go, what? Dad, cut it out. Did I just do that? I'm sorry. Um, he realized that his father was so like, aware and awakened and open to the possibility there might be the miraculous. And in that moment, Mike Cosper realized how closed off he was to the possibility that there might be something more mysterious than he could have imagined. He wasn't necessarily buying into what his father had seen, but in that moment, he was kind of realizing there is something that had shifted in him. And he's a pastor. And so he says in the introduction to that book, he says this, I react to the suggestion of a miracle, or for that matter, any thoughts about God, the spiritual or the transcendent, with skepticism and cynicism. It's my default setting. I'm programmed to expect that the world is what I can see, touch, and measure, and any thought or idea that runs against that expectation is met with resistance. Programming is actually a great way to think about it. I've learned to see the world this way, and I don't have to think about it anymore. Consider the source right here, right? Who's, who's writing? This is a guy that teaches the Bible, who went to seminary for the Bible, who was ordained to the pastorate to teach and preach the Bible, and here's the guy saying, yeah, I get it, but I'm naturally programmed to screen out the possibility that the miraculous might actually occur. And he's going, what has happened to me? What has come to take plant in my soul that that would become my default setting? Maybe he's not incurious. Maybe he's not indifferent. But he's kind of discovering there or discerning that there's something impenetrable about his own heart when it comes to considering that God might be at work in things that I can't see, touch, or measure. Far be it for me to project that story or my story upon your story. But I wonder if you might share in that same concern, at least for a moment. Because it's that inclination to which we are liable and tempted and is to which Jesus is saying, push back. Work it in. Even if you don't get it, even if you fight against it, work it in. Will you stand under it? That's the first inclination. The second inclination that this receptivity is trying to push against is nothing less or nothing more than a sense of um, rootlessness. And by rootlessness, I'm not talking about like a wanderer or a vagabond. I'm, I'm talking about where you are not held firmly into where you find yourself. Um, my daddy grew up in Oklahoma. He was a young boy in the 1930s when the Dust Bowl hits. And if you know the story of the Dust Bowl, you know that a drought hits all the way from North Texas and the panhandle of Texas all the way to North Dakota and Montana. Um, sustained drought. But the reason the Dust Bowl was the Dust Bowl was not just because of climatic changes. If you rewind the tape and you read the history, you discover it was drought plus ecological ignorance. In so many of those places that went up in smoke, as it were, they saw the the grasslands of that area that had been there for thousands of years that was deeply rooted and well set and held everything together and, and therefore gave off this wonderful picture of what can money can we make here by turning it into farmland. And so they did. And they uproot the grassland and they plow it and plant it for farmland. And sure enough, at the very beginning, boom, a bounty. And then the drought hits. And when you've uprooted millions 
of acres of grassland and put down two inches of soil to grow your corn. When the drought hits, that soil dries up and blows away and it scours the land and it darkens the sky. That kind of erosion that comes by way of outside influence and internal choice is exactly the sort of thing that Jesus is warning us about. A surface kind of condition that we might experience. And he's comparing that. He's comparing that picture to a heart that, if you will, is rootlessness. He's saying it's very possible to hear what he has to say and receive it, he says, with joy. To hear the encouragement in what he has to say. And you go, yes, I'm finally home. This is the words I've been waiting for. This is the story I knew was True out there, I hoped it would, and sure enough, there it is. And you buy into it, and you begin to blossom, and then, boom, a fierce wind of opposition comes up. And he calls it persecution. And it's this idea that, boy, you, you embrace it, you internalize it, and then somebody looks at you funny, and they say, what? What? You're a nut. You're on the wrong side of history. You're a fool. You believe. It's just wish perception. It's just wishful fulfillment. And if there's anybody that embodies this sort of moment, it's Peter. Chapters earlier, he's the one telling Jesus, I'm going to die with you, man. I am going to go to the mat with you. And then within days, he's the one who's spitting on the ground saying, Jesus, Jesus who? Never heard of a guy. And what he is susceptible to, you and I are susceptible to. Now look, in all parts, there's many parts of the world in which kind of physical violence for believing in what he has to say, it'll get you killed, or it'll get you imprisoned, or it'll get you financially, economically, socioeconomically marginalized, disenfranchised, whatever. Here, it's subtler, and believe me, we've said this before, in America, please don't call yourself persecuted. Ridiculed, rejected, marginalized, great. Persecution, it's of a different order on a different register. But the principle is still the same. There is a rootlessness to which we are all liable when it comes to being met with a fierce wind of opposition. What do we do about it? How do we respond to it? Jesus really doesn't, in this parable at least, tell us, how do I live a rooted life? He he saves that for another parable. He saves that for another part of his story. He might just mean to tell us in this part of the parable that part of being rooted is just knowing that a fierce wind is coming. And that when it comes, it doesn't mean you lose heart in what you've heard. It actually is out to confirm the truth of what you might have heard. And it also means that you have to figure out, what is it? Where does my hope found? How do I water deep in order to be rooted? Can I, I want to show you a picture of what rootedness actually looks like. And it's another clip from the Sunset Limited. Here's another moment where black and white get on over whether God is worthy of trust. Myself, look upon this yearning for God as something lacking in these people. Sure, I do. I couldn't agree more. You agree with that? Yes. What's lacking is God. I'm sorry, but to me, this whole idea of God is just a load of crap. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Jesus, help us. The professors are gone and blasphemed all over us. We ain't never gonna be saved now. You don't find that an evil thing to say? Oh, no, Professor, I don't, but you do. No, I don't. It's simply a fact. No, it ain't simply no fact. Now, that's the biggest fact about you. In fact, 
It might just be the honest fact. But you don't seem to think it's so bad. No, because I know it to be curable. Now, if you're asking me what the man up there thinks about it, well, I imagine he doesn't hurt it so much that it don't bother him all that much. I mean, what if somebody told you you didn't exist and you were sitting right there listening to him say it? He knows the professor's coming from a much different angle. He obviously has great love for the professor anyway, but he is going to tangle with it. And, and he's not afraid of... Uh, it's not that he doesn't believe that this person can't imagine believing in God, and he doesn't ridicule him for it, but he just doesn't need the, the professor's approval in order to feel safe in what he believes. He's watered deep, and he doesn't need those that he might respect in another frame in order to hold fast to what he believes is good. And that's watering deep, and that doesn't happen overnight. And look, there's a little sociology of knowledge fact that I have picked up in recent years coming from a guy named Peter Berger who says this, you know what you and I are most likely to believe is true? You and I are most likely to believe what is true when it comes from somebody that we wish would like us. That we think we operate most of the time on the basis of reason and evidence and plausibility. When in fact, a lot of the time, you and I are swayed by the arguments that come from the people who we would love to see at Starbucks and sit down and have a chat. So let me throw out a name. Um, Ed Sheeran. Musician from the UK. uh, Up and coming. Done some really dastardly stuff offline. Hello. But if... Ed Sheeran was tomorrow to come out on Twitter and say, you know, bloke, the moon is actually flat. It's totally flat. Look outside in the night sky. It's totally flat. Do you know how many people would go out that night and go look at the moon and go, I'm not seeing a curve anymore. I think you might be right. Now, I know that's a ridiculous illustration, but it, it kind of gets at the heart of the way you and I operate the way I operate. If it's somebody I admire, somebody I like, somebody I wish, gosh, in my heart of hearts, I don't think I'll ever want to admit it, but I wish they like me. They say something that comes against where I'm going on, thinking about, I go, maybe they're right. It's the way we work. It's why we need to be rooted. Otherwise, we will sink our roots into so many other things that will change to borrow it. Mix the metaphor like a tossing sea. He's warning us about the inclination toward indifference. He's also warning us about the inclination towards a rootlessness. But it's the last inclination that perhaps is the most particularly relevant to you and to me. Given where we are and when we are. And that is the inclination towards being preoccupied. Preoccupied with something in particular. And you hear that spoken of there in verse, was it 22? As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. There it is. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. What's he talking about there? He's saying that there are things in our lives for which we are the most anxious, that we give our most thought to, therefore we are most concerned about. And there are things to which we give our attention and our investment Because people have told us that's your way to happiness. And Jesus is making, like he has before, a simple economic statement. 
You economists, you CPAs, you've heard of this phrase called opportunity cost. An opportunity cost is if I invest in one direction, that necessarily means I cannot invest in another direction. If I give my attention here, that means I can't give my attention there. I can't do it two times in a row any more than I can split my eyes in two directions at the same time. I've got to go in one place and in one direction only. That's how we work. Jesus is saying, if you give all your concern to your own improvement, to your own advancement, to your own accumulation, you've got no room left to be receptive unto what he has to say. Our head space, our mind space, our soul space, it has a finite limit. And if you give yourself your attention to that in that soul direction almost exclusively, you've got nothing left to be receptive to what he has to say. And that's his warning. We're told, we learn, we intuit, life is found in one way, and Jesus is saying, I I actually have life for you. I don't have just rules for you, I have life for you. But other things will compete for your attention, just like thorns in soil with seed. And in a moment like that, you have to ask yourself, what is to be done? Can I show you, though, a picture of what is the opposite, again, the opposite of being preoccupied. Here's another clip where, again, White's attempt to take his own life comes fully into view while it's been looming beneath the surface. Listen. The point is, Professor, I ain't got the first notion in the world about what makes God tick. I don't know why he spoke to me. I know I wouldn't have. But you listened. And what choice would you have? I don't know, um... Not listen. You think he goes around talking to people he knows ain't gonna listen to him in the first place? You think he got that kind of free time? Why is it you people can't just accept it that some people don't even want to believe in God? I can accept that. You can. Sure, I can. Meaning, I believe that to be a fact. I mean, I'm looking at it every day. So, I better accept it. Then why can't you leave us alone? Oh, to be hanging from steam pipes and all that? If that's what we want to do, yes. Because he said not to. It's in here. When a man has no hope and he's lost all faith, having never had it, and he thinks his only option is to let go of everything, why don't you just leave him be? He's an autonomous subject. He can write his own path. Leave him alone. Why not? Because God said not to. Look, wealth in and of itself is not the problem. But the nature of wealth is that the more you get, the more you then are committed to taking responsibility for and nurturing and insuring and replacing and fixing and all that stuff. And the more you get, the more you kind of start to drift into communities where they're mostly like you and sort of an out of sight, out of mind, out of heart thing for anybody that's impoverished or anything like that. So no, it's not inevitable that that is your world, but it is the natural drift that wealth and preoccupation with your advancement, your improvement, and your accumulation goes. And therefore, Jesus is saying, if you want to be available for people like that, 
then there has to be space in your heart for that to happen. And what you see in that clip, perfectly and succinctly stated, is four things in one moment. Availability, courage, compassion, and tenacity. And the only way that black can be like that for white in that moment is because his head and his heart is not full of his own improvement, accumulation, and advancement. Jesus is not simply about depriving you of things you might like. He's actually inviting you to make a little space in your heart so that you can be available in that way. It's not a killjoy. It's fitting you for a purpose. Indifference is our problem. Rootlessness is our inclination. Preoccupation with all sorts of things is where we go naturally if left to ourselves. But I know full well a sermon and eclipse are not going to solve the problem. Because while, again, we might all nod our heads and go, Amen, black. There's more of the white guy in us than we might like to admit. Than I might like to admit. So what will push back against it? What is able to invite us into that privilege and that purpose? Setting aside, repenting on a regular basis of those things that seem so naturally inclined to us. Let me show you one last scene. I promise this is it. And this will get us to the heart of what we need if this world is to be different. Is this some kind of test of your faith? What, you? Me, yes. Ain't my faith you tested. You can see everything in black and white. It is black and white. I suppose that makes the world easier to understand. You'd be surprised how little time I spent trying to understand the world. You try to understand God. No, I don't. I try to understand what he wants from me. And that's everything you need. If God ain't everything you need, then you're in a world of trouble. I don't make a move without Jesus. When I get up in the morning, I try to grab a hold to his belt. Sometimes I go into manual override. I catch myself. Manual override. Yeah, you like that? It's okay. I thought it was pretty good. So you come to the end of your rope, and you admit defeat, and you're in despair, and and in this state, you seize upon this whatever it is. It has neither sense or substance, and you grab hold of it, and you hang on for dear life. Is that a fair portrayal? That might be one way to say it. Doesn't make any sense. Well, I thought when we was talking earlier, you were saying that there were none of it that made no sense, talking about the history of the world and some such. Well, it doesn't on a larger scale, but what you're telling me is not a view of things. It's a view of one thing, and I find it nonsensical. What would you do if Jesus was to speak to you? <laughs> do you imagine that he might? No, I don't. But I don't know. <laughs> I'm not virtuous enough. No, Professor, it ain't nothing like that. You ain't got to be virtuous. You just has to be quiet. You just heard the gospel and the sub and substance of this parable. You don't have to be virtuous. You just have to be quiet. Look, Jesus was anything but indifferent to yours and my condition. He was so interested in yours and my condition that he became one of us in our condition. Jesus was anything but suffering from rootlessness in his heart. He had the word of God so readily at his fingertips that he used it to make sense of this world, to illumine those who opposed him, and to fight with it against his own very bouts with temptation. 
And Jesus was anything but preoccupied with the things of this world. And he was so singularly focused on what he had that he would go all the way to a cross and die so that we might be his. Do you know what that tells you? It means you mean the world to him. And not because you were virtuous. You don't got to be virtuous. You just has to be quiet. And the way you and I can be quiet is to realize that our attention, our attentiveness, it's a resource. And it's a resource we spend. And it's a resource we direct. And believe me, every morning I am faced with a choice. Am I going to read all about the sports and the news or am I going to be quiet? And many times I fail. But he's inviting us to be quiet for one reason and one reason alone. And it's not to prove to him that you can read and pray. It is so that we might know his face better than our own. Even as we are fully known, may we know his face better than our own. That's the point. Not to prove that you're dedicated or disciplined, but that we might see that in a way that even though we see through a glass darkly, as Paul puts it right now, there will be a day when we see him face to face and we will be, know him as surely as we are fully known. That's the point. That's the purpose. That's the reasons we have by faith in his blood with the power of the Holy Spirit that he gives unto us that we might push back against those inclinations. So pray for me. And now I'm going to pray for you. Father, if we look in our hearts and find them disenchanted, if we nod our heads and agree in our hearts that this sounds like it's true and then every other day it feels more like a wrestling match to believe it might be, then I would ask that you would come again for one reason only, that we would see your face and know it. That would be more interested in knowing who you are, what you want, not that we might make sense of all things Maybe that we wouldn't make sense of even good things or a few things, but that we make sense of one thing, that you alone are God, and that because of what your son has done, we may be right to think that we mean the world to him. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.